My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Hey everyone, meet Dr. Stephen Warillo. Yeah, so Stephen Warillo, uh, head of the uh, intensive care unit here at Dostin Health. Yep, you heard correctly, director of ICU. Can you start by telling us a bit about your journey from internship to where you are now? Certainly. So I was a medical student and then an intern here at the Austin. It was a pretty common pathway for people, often do their internship where they've been a medical student. And I felt during the course of my internship, which I really enjoyed, it was exciting and hard work but a lot of fun, that I was probably more drawn to the physicianly arts rather than surgery or or general practice. I liked specialist practice and hospital-based practice. Yep. So uh, along with the encouragement of some friends and colleagues, I commenced uh, basic physician training and uh, did the usual terms, so through acute and uh, outpatient sort of physicianly uh, domains, so respiratory, cardiology, renal, sort of the the more acute end, but also some outpatient things and um, rehab terms as well. Then I did a term in intensive care up at Bendigo, and there was a newly arrived director there uh, John Eddington, who recently came from South Africa at the time, and he was a fantastic teacher, uh, very keen to mentor junior doctors, and uh, worked very hard to make the experience rewarding, and I loved the term. That was a revelation. I'd never done intensive care before, and it was, was terrific. So did you say that was in your internship, was it? Oh, sorry, that was uh, after my internship. After so, your internship, so right. Internship and then went into physician training. Right, yeah. And then during physician training, did this ICU term at Bendigo, and John was very kind and very supportive and very encouraging. And then I set my FRACP written exams uh, with uh, the study group I was in, and uh, unexpectedly, at least to me, passed. Uh, <laughs> that was great. Uh, after the celebration of passing, the, the dreaded realisation that I then had to sit the clinical exam in a matter of weeks after that. Yeah. So again, with the support of uh, my family and my study group, worked hard to prepare for that. And then again, to my own great surprise, passed the clinical <laughs> exams. And that was a wonderful feeling and very exciting and uh, a great celebration. But then the confronting realisation as to what do I want to specialise in? Yeah. yeah. And um, many of my colleagues were reasonably clear about what they wanted to do. But I'll be honest, it wasn't clear to me what I should do. And then I recalled how much I enjoyed intensive care as a resident uh, and uh, a junior doctor. And at that time, certainly, there were various pathways into intensive care, one of which was was via physician training. So I undertook uh, intensive care training on the basis that I'd really enjoyed it and I liked the breadth of experience that it offered. And so I commenced intensive care training here at the Austin and uh, proceeded through that. And... Then realised that I'd chosen one of uh, very few intensive care, sorry, one of very few physician training programs that had exit exams. All of the other ones didn't. <laughs> My wife asked, what were you thinking? More exams. <laughs> yeah. Why is it that your friends aren't who are doing physician training don't have these exams? And she's a very patient woman and accepted my explanation. <laughs> And so I then sat the 
intensive care exit exams. Uh, and again, there's a theme here, surprisingly to myself, uh, passed them and then became a consultant um, at a few places, uh, the Northern Hospital, um, Epworth Eastern in Box Hill, uh, a number of rural sites like Dulocums and also ultimately here at the Austin. Yeah, fantastic. So when you were deciding uh, to do intensive care, I imagine there were some other things that you were that were kind of running through your mind, other specialties. What were they and was it just the fact that you had a good time on intensive care that was the, I guess, the factor that made you choose ICU or was there something else that came into it as well? So there's a range of things. Um, some of it was sort of in a, one respect thinking about things that I enjoyed doing professionally. So I really liked intensive care's breadth of practice. It was one of the few opportunities to practice hospital-based medicine uh, and still have a very large breadth of um, case mix. So looking after patients who've had major surgery, looking after patients who've had um, traumatic injuries, looking after patients with acute severe medical problems like overwhelming infections or heart failure or neurological problems. Yep. Uh, so that was really interesting to me rather than being pigeonholed into one narrower case mix. I liked procedures, even though I, I certainly knew I didn't want to do surgery early on in my, my training. I nonetheless, really liked procedural medicine. I liked doing lines and lumbar punctures and tubes and all those sorts of things. And there's certainly plenty of scope for procedural practice in intensive care. It's a good pun. Yes. <laughs> and... Um, I liked the team-based approach very much, that intensive care is a team sport. And I guess you could say all of that, that's true across all of medicine, but but certainly specifically intensive care, that's absolutely the case. So everything we do is multidisciplinary. Uh, I I couldn't do anything without the intensive care nursing team, uh, my allied health colleagues. Uh, and uh, I like to think they couldn't do much without me. (laughs) And uh, that's certainly very satisfying. In terms of other things I had considered, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, neurology terms. I'd done a lot of neurology. I really enjoyed renal medicine. was fantastic. Had, had great teaching and mentors there as well. I uh, was fortunate enough to have done uh, a bit of cardiology as well, which was terrific. Uh, missed out on uh, respiratory t- uh, term, but th- that, that would have been... Sorry, I'll take that back. I had done a respiratory term, yep. um, and that was fantastic. Uh, and actually enjoyed rehab too. So I, I hadn't disliked anything that I'd done. One of the things that persuaded me against those, though, was what I perceived as the, the risk of having a much narrower case mix. Yeah. And uh, for me, it was really important to be able to maintain a, a breadth of interest where I'm clearly not a cardiology, but a cardiologist, but I manage many patients with cardiological problems. Yeah. I'm not a respiratory physician, but I manage plenty of patients with, with breathing disorders. Um, certainly not an ID physician, but I manage many patients with complex infectious uh, problems. Uh, and many of my patients have endocrinological problems, neurological problems. So it was a real opportunity to maintain a breadth of skills and interests. So going along with the generalist theme, why not uh, general practice or even general medicine within the hospital? So a good question. I was really attracted by hospital-based medicine rather than general practice. Um, that, that was one element of it. Um, I did a lot of general medicine as a physician trainee as, as part of the, the program and thoroughly enjoyed that. But I also liked the technology of intensive care. Uh, I liked the real-time nature of the practice where you, you would come up with a management plan, implement it, and then see almost before your eyes whether it worked or not and then right. modify. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I'll be honest, I wasn't a fan of outpatients. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I struggle with outpatients. Yep. Uh, many people love it and um, that's terrific. But f- for me, it was something that I um, didn't find particularly attractive. And uh, I did have a colleague who was from anesthesia actually point out to me that there's the three reasons to do intensive care. It's no outpatients, no outpatients, and no outpatients. And, <laughs> and I have to admit that did somewhat resonate with me just a little bit. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you're currently the director here at Austin Hospital. Can you tell us how you've come to be the director and any other non-clinical roles that you have? Sure. So I, th- I think one of the wonderful things about specialist practice is as well as direct patient care, which is why we all became doctors after all, is the opportunity to pursue a range of other professional portfolios and interests. Yes, yep. So um, during the course of my training and then consultant practice, I had a, a strong interest in teaching and training and spent time as a physician educator and a supervisor of training in um, physician education and intensive care. I also had an interest in uh, clinical governance, so understanding how the healthcare system works, how it's regulated, how we ensure high quality and standards for every patient at all times, how we deal with problems when things go wrong, so that that sort of things was of interest to me. Uh, I also had an interest in research, uh, certainly uh, there are others in intensive care who, who are much stronger academics and researchers than myself, but I think most intensive care specialists have a strong interest in improving the evidence base of our practice, and that was certainly something that I was given many opportunities mm. to participate in. Yep. So th- those are all different um, elements of professional development. I sort of think of them as the four pillars, so teaching, education, clinical governance, research, and clinical practice, are the, the sort of four pillars of specialist practice. Yep. And so those are all things that, as intensive care specialists, we all get to do, and I certainly did. And then sometimes by design and sometimes by um, circumstance, one finds oneself in with leadership opportunities. And I've been the great beneficiary in many respects of uh, places like Austin Health giving me those opportunities and having the support of friends, colleagues, and mentors to step up. Um, to be given the support and space to, to have a go. Um, support when you get it wrong. So um, that, that, that making a mistake or, or failing is can be done safely. Yeah. And to learn a lot along the way, to learn a lot about myself as a leader and manager and also learn a lot about how people work, how complex environments and structures and organisations work to recognize some things that work really, really well, and also to have the insight to recognize when things aren't working well and what we might do to constructively improve them. And I was given the opportunity, uh, I applied for and given the opportunity to be deputy director for a number of years and learned a lot through that. And uh, the director at the time, Graham Hart, was a good friend and mentor who um, fostered my interest and supported me. And ultimately, um, I was given the opportunity to apply for the position and any position of these nature, they're always a competitive appointment process and that's um, rigorous, a bit exciting, but also a bit scary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but was fortunate enough to um, be selected for the role and have now been doing it for a little over a year. Fantastic. So um, having become director, have you found that um, it's taken away from the amount of clinical work that you can do? So... The short answer is no, but I'll qualify it. So most clinician leaders, so heads of unit or or senior specialists with um, leadership and management roles, 
worked very hard and are very protective of, of maintaining clinical engagement. Yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, we all went to medical school to be doctors, not managers. Yeah. So I, I think the vast majority of clinical leaders uh, are very much engaged in and, and value their clinical the clinical work. I think it's often how doctors define themselves as uh, carers and, and healers and uh, clinicians, uh, even though we do a lot of other stuff beside. So um, in intensive care, we have an arrangement where we do uh, in our unit, and, and it's common for most intensivists, uh, 70% of our time professionally is clinical care and 30% is clinical support time. So that's things like research, teaching, mentorship, clinical right. government, those sorts of things. <clears throat> As the director and also for people like my deputy director or the supervisor of training, yeah. we have a slightly different portion uh, or proportion where we'll do a little less clinical work and a little bit more um, administrative type work. So I'm 0.6 clinical and 0.4 <clears throat> non-clinical type administrative time. Yeah, so you just a difference of about 10%, essentially. Yeah, so the, I, I, they, they cut me some slack. <clears throat> uh, and in terms of you talking about we become doctors, we're here to become doctors, not managers. We Was it in your mind to always aim for the director of ICU or is it something that just kind of, like you said, got fostered along the way? So... I definitely did not aspire to be the director of anything when I was in medical school or an yep. intern. <laughs> um, uh, I was aspiring to get through the course and yes. pass. Yes. <laughs> and uh, similarly as a junior doctor, I was focused on looking after my patients, trying to maintain a work-life balance with my family and other interests and um, get through postgraduate training. And again, I think for most people, that's how they live. That's your goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's their goal. And then I, I guess it's when you become a senior trainee, certainly this was my experience, a senior trainee, you start to have a bit of an interest in what it is that your bosses seem to be doing when they're not on the floor with you. Yes, yep. And you start to ask questions about, oh, what is it that you do in your office when you're not out with me on a ward round? And you learn more, you read more about research, you read more journals and understand how important research is and an understanding of that. You begin to develop an appreciation, dare I say, respect for the need for governance and structure and the organisation that surrounds you and makes all the things possible. And you also develop an interest in teaching that having been the beneficiary of so much support, mentorship and education, I think doctors feel a strong traditional obligation and um, interest and um, strong desire to, to share that with, with those that come after them. So it's a gradual process. and. As that evolves, um, as we've already discussed, you, you develop an interest in maybe progressing up that, that hierarchy and people offer you opportunities. Um, and the opportunities are not just in the hospitals either. I, I'm fortunate enough to have, lead, have leadership roles in the colleges, so the College of Physicians, yep. um, also through the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Societies. And uh, there's a lot of scope for uh, junior doctors as they explore their non-clinical interests to um, engage with a whole range of different um, interests outside of just direct clinical practice through their colleges, their specialist societies, and within their, their employing hospitals. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the med collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. Now, you've also done a certificate in aeromedical retrieval. Can you tell us why you did that and how it's kind of played into being an intensivist? So that was one of the more fun things I've ever done professionally. I don't mind admitting that and I miss it. And uh, hello to anyone from Adult Retrieval Victoria. Uh, (laughs) It was with much regret that I had to stop doing that. So um, when I was a junior intensivist, so uh, in my first couple of years of consultant practice, I was very fortunate to get some work at the Northern Hospital. And Graham Duke, who was the director there at that time, was a a good friend and mentor. And he um, had arrangements with Adult Retrieval Victoria, who manage all of the retrieval of adult patients from rural centres to tertiary referral centres. Yep. Uh, he uh, uh, had discussions with them and, and helped organise, for those that are interested, to do some retrieval work for ARV. They wanted intensivists to be engaged uh, in addition to their ambulance staff. And so uh, as part of my role, I got to go out there um, once a week and do a 24-hour shift um, in planes and helicopters, uh, pulling patients from rural hospitals uh, who are critically ill into tertiary centres with us intensive care units in Melbourne. Sounds fantastic. It was a lot of fun. And yeah. so the, the training's rigorous. They, they want you to be safe. Firstly, clinically safe, that you can look after a patient in a challenging environment, which is the the you know the, the small um, yeah. area you've got in a plane or the small even smaller area you've got in a helicopter, that you could be self-sufficient and self-reliant if they're going to fly you out to a small rural centre with a small hospital without a full team that you need to be able to confidently manage all the clinical issues and procedures on your own and also that um, you're not going to hurt yourself or your patient or anyone else when you're part of the crew in a helicopter or yeah. an aeroplane right. so that you um, you know don't step out of the helicopter and start running <laughs> uphill and, uh, and get decapitated that sort yeah. of thing yeah. so they have a comprehensive training program uh, that links to a um, diploma or a certificate in um retrieval medicine uh, through uh, Monash University and uh, as part of your on-the-job training and uh, theory work uh, you work towards um, a a qualification. That's fantastic I wasn't aware that like that's another way that intensivists can work so it's good to good to know that. Can you tell us what it's like to be an intensivist or what a typical day or week involves for you and the kind of work that you're doing? So yeah trying to really give us a feel of what it's what it would be like if we were to become an intensivist. Sure. So uh, I'll qualify everything I'm about to say is that I love my job. So I'll be selling it hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I love about it is when I get up each morning, I know that it will ne- definitely not be boring. Yeah. I never quite know what's going to happen. And that's not to say that it's chaotic. In fact, it's certainly far from chaotic. But there's always something interesting going on. There's always uh, an interesting case mix of patients, I never know who's going to be referred. In addition to the usual post-op elective patients, uh, there'll be people coming through the emergency department or referred from rural sites, and they could have pretty much any condition you can think of associated with critical illness um, under the sun. So uh, I, I'm never bored, and that to me that was important. I like being challenged and surprised. I like um, a little bit of uh, not being entirely sure. Um, what's going to come through the door. So, so that's really important to me and I, I enjoy it. Um, we come in and have a handover round from the, the evening team who've been managing patients overnight and we talk about the problems that they've been dealing with and the, any new patients. And the handover is really important. 
then we have a ward round uh, with the, uh, the consultant, uh, the registrar, uh, resident, and uh, one of the senior nurses, and we go around and see every patient in the unit. And that takes a variable amount of time, but it can certainly take four hours easily. Um, so we ordinarily finish the morning ward round at around lunchtime. Right. So pretty long ward rounds, usually. Yeah, yep. because we've got, you know, 10 patients perhaps, and they're all complicated. There's there's no one that's just a sort of a wave more pass and, and, and they're okay. The, the yeah. problems are always complicated. Right. Because um, so if they weren't, there wouldn't be an ICU. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, and there's the technology to check. You know, it's, you're managing a complex system, at the centre of which is obviously a vulnerable human being, which is, is the most important part of it. But there's you got to make sure that all the technology that is connected to them is functioning appropriately uh, and is safe and safely set up and is doing all the things that you expect it to be doing. So the water rounds take a bit of time. And then we have a break in the middle of the day where I might go and chase up some administrative tasks or do some teaching or follow up on some research uh, work. The junior team, the junior doctors, will then follow up on all the plans that we've developed. Yeah. So someone might be taken off for a CT because on the ward round we felt they weren't waking up, better get a CT of their brain, make sure we're not missing something. Or the patient might need new lines, so a central line or a um, hemodialysis catheter or something like that. So the, the junior doctors would generally do that. If they need assistance, they'll grab me and I'll, I'll come out and troubleshoot or assist them. And so that occupies the middle part of the day. Then later in the day at around four, we have an evening round where we go through and see whether all the plans that we came up with have been completed and what the outcomes of the tests were or what the response to treatment has been. And we also plan for what's going to come into the unit that we know about the following day. So how many cardiac patients will be coming in after surgery? Um, are we expecting someone from another hospital? We need to plan for all of that. And then we hand over to the evening team so that they can understand all of the things that we've been up to during the day and provide seamless continuity of care for each patient overnight so that they always know what we're doing and we always know what um, they're doing and the cycle continues and generally speaking as specialists we work between five and seven days in a row yeah and of those days we'll normally do uh, between two and four nights on call so i'll leave the hospital on a clinical day at around between 6 p.m and maybe 9 or 10 p.m depends is it depending um, on the workload or the patient mix both. or both? Yeah. Right. So sometimes you you might not have you might not be full. You might have not that many patients, but you only need one really really sick patient, and you can't go anywhere. Uh, and sometimes you can be really really full, but people are holding up and responding more to treatment and getting better, and you can leave on time. So it's it's variable. So when you say six to ten p.m. somewhere around there, is that on the days that you are on call or the days that on you're the not days on I'm on call? call. The days you're on call. Right. On the days that I'm not on call, you can almost almost always get out of here by six. Right. Yeah. Uh, sometimes a little after, but generally speaking, by six. Yeah. And then you can go home and not be hassled by anyone. Yeah. Unless the hospital was burning down or something that was huge, <laughs> um, you get left alone, and the person on call fields any phone calls or questions that the the trainees might have overnight the intensive care trainees are fantastic um, they work really hard they know their stuff quite well and uh, they're often pretty experienced as they get more senior so they will deal with many of the problems that will come up overnight and, and nearly all of the routine stuff uh, when they're ringing uh, someone like a specialist as myself overnight, it's often just to discuss a problem that they really know how to manage, but they just want to check, check right, in, yep. that they're onto it. 
Uh, or they might hit a roadblock that they've come up with a problem that they're not sure about. Uh, or the patient might be getting sicker and sicker and sicker despite treatment. And there's nothing that anyone can do about that because everything has been tried. But they need to let the boss know. Right. Yes. So that um, everyone is aware of what the circumstances are. So that um, uh, in um, any follow-up, um, it can be clear that the key people were very aware and there was every opportunity to do the right thing for that patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... So you mentioned you're working five to seven days in a row. How many days are you off after working five to seven days in a row? Again, it depends. Um, sometimes a couple of days, um, usually a couple of days, so two days you might have the weekend off. Yep. Um, or you might be straight back again. And, and look, every now and then one might work two weeks straight or, or, or rarely three weeks straight. Now, I don't think anyone pretend that that's a great idea. Yep. Uh, and people shouldn't do that. I'll, I'll put that out there. Sometimes the way the roster works, though, it might... To fit in with other requirements, you might be going to a conference or might have some leave arrangements. Ah, yes, sure. So the roster ends up being a bit lumpy. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, it, it tends to be pretty bearable because you might have a week of non-clinical work. Yeah. So uh, I've described to you my, my clinical days, but on my non-clinical days, I might have no patient care responsibilities unless there's an absolute crisis. Yeah. And then my day is full of catching up with all the admin work that I neglected whilst I was on clinical time. Yeah. Uh, and again, things like teaching, governance issues, um, mentorship, um, uh, doing some research, um, going to lots of meetings and uh, looking at things like budgets and all that sort of stuff, which is in a sense, well, maybe in a sense kind of boring, but absolutely essential yes. to, to provide uh, you know, a complex healthcare service. So we've talked a lot about all the great things about ICU and intensive care. What aspect of being an intensivist do you struggle with the most? So there's, there's I think like any discipline, there's challenges. Yeah. Uh, a couple of them would include, we often don't get continuity of care. So I will look after someone for an episode of critical illness that might last a day or two, or it might last a month. But either way, I don't get to see the before or the after necessarily. Right. So whilst I sort of, I guess, made it pretty clear I wasn't a fan for me of outpatients, I do get, I do miss out on that sort of linear relationship where you can form a bond with the patient and follow them over years. Uh, that's not the sort of practice I get to see. And part of me does miss that a bit. So that, that's, that's something that is uh, uh, to be aware of. Uh, another challenge is the on-call is hard work. Yeah. Um, going to bed, you know, at uh, 11 or 12 at night and being pretty tired after a very full day, uh, just knowing that you might get calls means you don't sleep quite as well. I think most doctors would tell you that. that yeah. That even if you don't get called, you still don't sleep as well because you know right. you might be called. And then you might get a number of calls. Um, you might get one or two calls. That's not too bad. You might get five or six or seven that's a bit more challenging and there are instances where you just need to come in yeah and you are exclusively and immediately available and there is never an excuse and you just come in and you sort things out and then you work again the next day yeah and i think anyone with insight would realize that that can be tiring and and hard work you do get a bit used to it and some people clearly cope with it very well other people find it quite challenging um, yeah it's not for everyone, I'd say. Um, some people, if you really, really love your sleep, 
probably intensive care isn't for you. <laughs> and if you find it very hard to get back to sleep after being woken up, it can be a struggle. But, right. but you do actually develop strategies and, and you get better at it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, all the working and the different hours, so can you talk to me about shift work and, that, how, and how that works with you and I guess functioning as a normal human being as well? And especially over a long period of time, because I guess shift work is might not necessarily be a bad thing in the in a very short term, but if you're doing it for you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years, then it might become challenging. So, as a intensive care advanced trainee, was as a junior doctor, full stop. I did a lot of shift work, like all junior doctors. Yeah. Certainly, my wife pointed out, in addition to being one of the only physicianly specialties that has exit exams. I seem to be doing one of the only advanced training programs that has rostered night duty. Yeah. She mentioned that a few times. Yeah. And uh, one of the powerful motivating factors behind completing my training was to move out of doing rostered night duty. Yeah. Because as a consultant, I might get called in and I will be on call, but I don't do rostered nights where I'm here regularly overnight. Yes. And so that, that was really one of the great parts about becoming a consultant was moving out of that phase. Um, I think we're a lot better at planning rosters now. And in fact, we've done a lot of work here in our unit and at the Austin to provide rosters that are safer for uh, trainees, safer for patients, give a better approach to work-life balance, and also allow people to perform at their best. And when I recall the sorts of rosters that I used to do as a trainee, they are frankly occasionally Atrocious. Not always. I won't pretend it was always hard. Yeah. yeah. It's, but there were sometimes I reflect on that. That was pretty difficult, and I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable inflicting that on anybody else. I think the junior doctors now still often do it tough, but I think we have come a long way in our understanding and approach to doing it better. Mm-hmm. And certainly in our unit, we have now shifted to an approach where our um, advanced trainees are doing three day shifts followed by three night shifts, and then followed by six days off. Right, okay. Now, you'll never please all of the people all of the time, but in the compromise of getting this sort of thing worked out, that seems to be a a much better solution than all sorts of things that we've tried in the past. Do you think um, trainees in ICU are more likely to become burnt out than trainees in other specialties? So there's good evidence that intensive care doctors both trainees and, and consultants, to have a higher risk of burnout than many other disciplines. And there's good data support that the hours are a bit rougher than other disciplines. And I don't think any of us would pretend in intensive care that we've got it sorted out yet. Yes. Um, I think it's also f- important to recognise that there are some elements of some jobs that are just inherent to the role. Yeah. I, I think if one was very aware that sleep was very important in one's life, probably don't choose intensive care. Yeah, that, like that, you mentioned that, before. That, that's going to cause grief. Yeah. Um, one of the great things about medicine is a really broad church. Yeah, There's that's so right. many amazing specialties. I think anyone can find a niche for themselves where things will work really well for them. And I think having some awareness about your own work-life balance preferences, your own resilience, um, your own ability to cope with fatigue, uh, I think that's important for people to, to you know, reflect on what, what, what matters to me. How, how do I feel when I've gone without sleep for 24 hours? Um, I don't think intensive care as I said before is for everyone. 
Um, and there's certainly specialties that, that I wouldn't be very good at. Um, so, so I think having some insight into yourself is your own preferences and limitations and the things that make you happy. Sure. Um, that's really important when, when making the selection and, and being realistic. Uh, I, I think choosing a specialty uh, that is going to be in direct conflict with other values that you have in your life is, is setting yourself up for a really difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, most people seem happiest when they've taken the time to reflect on what their values are, what they, they think is important in their life, and then spend a bit of time also exploring what disciplines might be a good fit for that. And I think that's just common sense. And I don't think that's, you know, uh, rocket science eye-opener for anyone. Mm. But um, exploring your options and thinking through how it will impact in the longer term because this career will be for a really long time. Yeah, that's right. And, and choose something that you enjoy. Yeah. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Where do you see the field of ICU in the next, say, 10 years? Do you see it changing in what way? So we are seeing relentless improvement in outcomes for our patients in terms of survival, which is fantastic and really very exciting. And we've got new treatments coming on. We're able to do more um, care for more people. And uh, that's clearly fantastic. Some of the challenges that we have, though, is that whilst we're increasing survivorship, it's not at all clear that all of those patients go on to thrive. Yeah. And we are now mm. saving people that used to die. We've got whole groups of patients now that exist that didn't exist in the past. Uh, people who survive intensive care when in the past they would not. And I think one of the challenges for intensive care as a specialty is working with the rest of our um, clinical colleagues, but also society more broadly, to start to explore what do people value value in terms of surviving intensive care. And it will be different for different people. Um, but we have discovered that not everyone that survives is satisfied with the outcome that they end mm, up receiving. That, that they're functionally not as good as they feel is acceptable to them, or that they suffer considerable ongoing comorbidities or, or, or problems that they find very troublesome and mm. that they're not easily um, managed. Yeah. And so I think having a conversation more and more with our colleagues and, and patients themselves and you know getting the conversation with the rest of society to think in terms of not just survival but quality of life and survival because sometimes on mm. reflection we get people through who they themselves aren't so sure that that's what the choice that they would have made in hindsight. Correct. Yes. Do you have an idea of the landscape of how difficult it is to get into ICU at the moment as a trainee? So I think for all postgraduate training, it is becoming more challenging to get into any training program. Yes. And that's, I think, just the arithmetic of more junior doctors. Yep. And essentially the same number of training places uh, Correct. Uh, by and large. So I, I think anyone with insight will, will understand that. Uh, intensive care used to have a pathway where one could come from uh, internal medicine, so physician training, emergency medicine, uh, or anesthesia largely. Those are the, the three main intakes. Now it's largely through a, a primary exam process. 
uh, and then proceeding through intensive care um, specifically. Do you know the number of trainees that are being accepted into uh, ICU or and how many people are actually applying for it? So one of the challenges in intensive care is that unlike many other disciplines, once you finish your training to become a specialist, you can't just go and set up in rooms somewhere. Correct, yeah, that's um, right. You, you need to get a job in a unit, be that a, a public unit, which is what most people will certainly um, uh, aim to do, um, and also balanced with probably an appointment for many people. Uh, it's of interest to be in a private intensive care unit as well. And in essence, you either need for a unit to expand and, and make more positions or for someone to retire. Fundamentally, yeah. That, that, yeah. That's, that's, um, there are plenty of locum opportunities. If someone, if a specialist is going on maternity leave or taking sabbatical, um, so many of us start out that way. But in, in essence, jobs don't just come about and you can't just be entrepreneurial and go out and set up your own unit yeah. somewhere. So that means there's a relatively fixed number of positions. Yeah. And it's fair to say that the match between the number of trainees coming through and the number of positions isn't isn't a good match uh, at the moment. And there's, there's more people coming through than there are positions. Yeah. And that's the current reality. The College of Intensive Care Medicine is also, as I understand it, working hard to address the question of how many people are realistic to train, not based necessarily on whether their jobs for them is in some ways that's a separate discussion. But in a unit of, say, 30 beds, how many trainees can get adequate exposure to procedures and clinical problems to come out at the end of the training program appropriately qualified? And there's a lot of work going to figure out what that number is at the moment. So it's a difficult question to answer as to how many training places there are in Victoria or, or Australia because it's under process of review at the moment. Like all colleges, intensive care is currently figuring out how do we best select people into the training program. In the past, like many disciplines, that was relatively straightforward. You just applied for an intensive care job. (laughs) And if you got one at a hospital, then you applied for uh, to join the college and and join the program. And subject to certain, you know, checks, then that was relatively straightforward. I think that would have been most people's experience. Like all training programs, it is becoming more formalized, more rigorous now. And there's been a gradual um, increase in the um, requirements to actually get into training. Yeah. Mm. Um, I imagine as a intensivist, you have quite difficult conversations with family members and um, other teams and whatnot. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is that something, is that a skill that you've that you kind of had as a junior doctor and so it was quite well suited to the job or is that something that you had to learn on the go? I think both. Yeah. I think the sorts of people that are attracted into intensive care training are those that see within themselves the capability to be a good communicator. Yes. To relate well to people, to be able to recognise ethical and clinical challenges and communication challenges, who are able to manage the potential for conflict and uh, are not frightened of having a complex or crucial conversation. So I think that those are important characteristics to pursue intensive care practice. Combined with those traits, which I think are inherent in people that undertake intensive care training, you get a lot of opportunity to to learn and practice. Yeah. Um, 
you get to see your senior colleagues, your, your bosses, uh, undertake these conversations and then gradually get the opportunity to start doing it yourself with their support and supervision. Occasionally you'll see things that someone else is doing go wrong or you'll make mistakes yourself and you certainly learn from that. And uh, because we're doing those things on a regular basis most days, um, then you do develop a style which I think has to be authentically yours. You can't just copy someone else. Um, you do develop skills, experience and confidence as to, to how to do it well. And even then you won't always get it right. Of course. I, I can it's always going to be difficult. I can certainly reflect on things that even after years of experience I've thought that didn't go so well yeah. and it was partly my fault mm-hmm. and if I was having that conversation again I'd do it a little differently. Yeah. So we never stop learning but I think it's repeated opportunities to, to undertake the conversations and also with experience every human being every family is different that's a given but there are some things that are universal people want to be listened to they want to be respected they want to know that the the doctor looking after their loved one cares about them and they they actually i think they want to trust us and if we can give them reasons to trust us then the conversations tend to go a lot better of course and also learning to be patient that it's often unnecessary to go into a family meeting or a meeting with a, another team and need to have a given outcome at the end of it in a certain time frame. Yeah. So often if you give people a little bit of time and space to reflect on what's been discussed and not rush them into something and not make them feel railroaded or feel that um, the outcome is a foregone conclusion, Yes. then if you give people the opportunity to be to be reasonable they often will be the last question i had about icu is is um icu a research heavy specialty absolutely so especially in australia and new zealand uh intensive care practice is replete with uh very active uh academic researchers and and clinical researchers in fact largely through the clinical trials group of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Uh, we undertake more investigator-initiated research in relative and absolute terms than any other country in the world. Right, okay, yep. And so there is a huge opportunity for really interesting clinical and um, lab-based research across critical care. There's some um, ex- extraordinary opportunities. Changing tact a little bit now, what are your interests outside of medicine and how do you kind of fit that into your life, especially given the hours that you work and I guess the on-call and whatnot? So I really enjoy the outdoors. Uh, It's always a challenge to get the opportunity to to pursue those sorts of interests. And what I've come to try and do over time is to always schedule holidays. So that is, I've always scheduled sort of two holidays ahead so that when I've finished one, I know there's another one coming up in a couple of months. Right. So that I'm never wondering, oh, what's up next? I've always got a plan. To try and do activities that can fit in with other things that I find interesting. So um, I actually like riding my bike, so I ride my bike to work most days. Yeah. And that's both a great outdoor recreational pursuit that I really enjoy, but it's also my transport. So that sort of works in with work very well. Uh, I like uh, bushwalking, I love cross-country skiing, I love uh, mountain bike riding, those sorts of things. So I try and 
whenever I can get a break, I'll try and work in the opportunity to do something like that. Uh, I also pursue a slightly unusual hobby called amateur radio, which is probably the most nerdy thing anyone could ever do, <laughs> which is um, you have to be licensed and sit a few exams and, and get licensed through... More exams. Uh, yeah, correct. <laughs> Lots of exams in life. Um, but you can qualify to uh, own and operate um, uh, amateur radio transmitters on all different frequency bands and talk to people all around the world. And, right. Um, uh, most people, as I'm explaining this to their eyes, are sort of glazing over at this point and my wife's ribbing in the rib saying, stop talking about the damn radios. <laughs> um, people that aren't interested. But but to me, I love it. Uh, I think if I hadn't done medicine, I would have been a communications engineer. Yeah. Uh, I love electronics and um, physics and that sort of thing. And, and uh, ham radio uh, is, is a lot of fun for me. So if I'm out um, on um, cross-country skis or hiking, I always have uh, a radio with me. If I'm in my... Um, car driving the outback in my four-wheel drive i'll have an hf radio can talk to someone else on the other side of the world so yeah pre- pretty nerdy pretty technical but uh i think that kind of fits in with the icu as well a lot of physics a lot of you know technology and whatnot so it seems yeah. to be like a your personality suits icu yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. probably true yeah. yeah um and in general can you comment on your work-life balance and how that's kind of changed over time and how you see it changing in the future as well yeah so i think any sane person should very carefully ensure that they have as much work-life balance as they can. It's totally essential. I think it's fair to recognise that there'll be times in your career where it's more difficult than other times. And certainly I think, in my own experience and the advice that I give trainees preparing for exams is, in the year leading up to high-stakes exams, postgraduate exams, you'll find things work a lot better for you at a personal level if your priorities are your family, your work and your study. Um, And put your head down for a year and focus on those three key things, pass your exams, celebrate with exuberant joy, and then you'll have a lot of fun to do a lot of other things that you want to do as well. So I think work-life balance, you have to think strategically how you set things up as your career is progressing. So like you say, organising your holidays ahead of time, so you've got something going on. Yeah, because... If you don't plan for this, you, there's a risk that your work will just consume you. Yes. And even when you do plan, that can still happen if you're not quite careful. But without planning, if you just kind of drift along through your training without planning holidays or without prioritizing your family life, uh, without ensuring that you're attending to your study, you, your work is busy, incredibly fulfilling, but it, it can be all-consuming. You, you mm. can never do enough. And so you, you do need to consciously plan out important things to you in your life to make sure that you you attend to them Mm -hmm. Um, certainly once you're through training there's lifelong learning of course so that's that's going to be part of your professional development forever but also making sure that um, when you get home that you've got a strategy of of how you switch off yeah for me riding my bike home is fantastic I can switch off just by, you know, that, that ride home. I can concentrate on keeping the wheels moving, not running into anything, staying on the path, feeling the wind through, rush past me and, and really have a great time and feel great. And by the time I get home, I'm in a great headspace. Yeah, uh, fantastic. Um, but And that won't work for everyone. Uh, yeah. But I think most people find their own strategy. I think it's really important. And uh, making sure that you've... Um, got people around who care about you a lot um it's your partner kids friends um your your family 
it's really important to have a support network. People who look out for you and, and are prepared to say you're okay. Yeah. Um, prepared to say, look, you seem to be working pretty hard. When's your next break? And also to have the courage and honesty to say, your, your work-life balance doesn't seem very good at the moment. Um, it probably needs to change. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hopefully being receptive to hearing that. Yeah. So... I think having um, a supportive family makes a big difference, or supportive friends. So people's circumstances will be unique to them. Um, It doesn't matter who those support people are as long as they care about you and they're around. The last question I have is, what's the worst advice you've ever received? The worst advice I've ever received? The worst advice I received was, uh, so I had children quite young in my career. Um, So my first daughter was born when I was a medical student. Yeah. And my second daughter was born when I was an intern. And uh, that essentially just required me to be rather organized, really. Um, it didn't seem to impact on anything else. Life was busy anyway, going to be busy anyway. Uh, and as a physician trainee, I took the view after discussions with some friends, good friends and my wife, that I would uh, work part-time by job sharing. And I remember one senior clinician said, oh, you're better off just working full-time and just pushing through and not, not protracting the training. And I'm glad I didn't take that advice because job sharing that year with smooth, two small children whilst I was doing med regging and preparing for the FRACP written and clinical exams was a really, really smart move and I've never regretted it. And I am really reflect very fondly on the time that I had with my little girls at the time. They're all grown up now. And the support I was able to give my wife, who was also um, pursuing her own professional development. She's not a doctor, uh, but but her career development um, in education, and um, still being able to work 0.5 in a you know rewarding but challenging role and prepare for exams, uh, I have no regrets for that. And I'm very glad I didn't take the advice to just push through it as full time. It was it was absolutely worthwhile. Cutting myself a little bit of slack and being prepared to. Um, protract my training by, by what was actually of you know 12 months in the yeah, end very nominal yeah, yeah um, it made a big difference to my um, happiness uh, I think it gave me a, a much closer bond that I might have otherwise had with my daughters which has endured you know as they've grown up and uh, reflecting on it if I'm honest I'm sure it helped me prepare for the exams I, I, I'm not sure I would have passed the exams if I'd been working full time with all my other responsibilities that's fantastic that's that's a great way to end. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Dr. Rulo. Pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible, and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds, and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. All right, guys, see you next week.